Good afternoon, Trails Church. It's great to be gathered today. Um, not in the forest. No bugs. Um, and yet, God is uh, good as ever. And I hope that this time is as precious as ever it was to you. Um, it certainly is to me this morning. Story of the Trojan horse is perhaps the most famous of all the Greek myths. The Trojan War had been going on for a decade, no end in sight, many Greek heroes dead, when Odysseus, or Odysseus, came up with an idea that won the war for the Greeks. Because the Trojans considered horses to be sacred, the Greeks built a large, hollow wooden horse. And to make it even better, they used wood from cornel trees, which is also considered sacred, to construct it. Odysseus and a group of men hid inside while the rest of the Greek army pretended to leave the area, destroying their camp, boarding their ships, and after some debate as to whether the Greeks could be trusted, the Trojans dragged the giant horse inside the walls of the city. The end of the 10-year siege was a huge relief to the people of Troy, who spent the night celebrating, and by midnight, everyone was in a drunken stupor which is when Odysseus acted, signaling to the Greek fleet to re return and leading his men out of the Trojan horse to kill the unsuspecting guards and open the doors. The Greeks then had access to the city, massacred the Trojans, and kept just a few alive as slaves, or so the legend goes. And so regardless of whether this is a true story or a myth, uh, it, it relates directly to what we're going to be looking at in 1 Timothy today. So I invite you in your Bibles, if you have one, to turn to 1 Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And what we'll discover might come as a surprise. Just like the Trojan horse that wasn't as wonderful and sacred as it appeared, Christians, both in Ephesus, where Timothy was pastoring as well as today, should expect that false teachers will appear more holy than most while actually leading some far from Christ. And so like Timothy and the church in Ephesus, we want to understand how to recognize these Trojan horses in our midst and guard against them as we cling to Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word to us. It's precious. It gives us light on the path. It opens our eyes by your spirit to be able to see what on our own our flesh might ignore or downplay, and we would be in grave danger, and we would even be spiritually dead, Lord, if you had not spoken and then allowed us to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray you do that again today through the preaching of your word. Speak to us. Open our eyes Help us to be uh, not naive as we cling to Jesus, thinking, thinking that evil will always look evil. But Lord, help us to see um, through your eyes what is good and what is evil. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're continuing our series. Uh, one commentator summarized the flow kind of of the text where we're at right now in this way. Um, in chapter 4, 1 through 5, Paul continues to tell Timothy about the purpose of of the letter that he's writing. He reminded him first of sort of his ethical aim. How do you behave in the household of God? And, and secondly, it's Christological basis. You can look at uh, chapter three, verse 16. And now he's gonna characterize the times that define Timothy's ministry setting. 
what kind of context is Timothy ministering? And we'll find it, it's very similar to our own. So let's read 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 together. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's begin with verse 1. That first phrase, now the Spirit expressly says, could also be translated, the Spirit very clearly, explicitly laid it out. It should be obvious, it's plain, it is manifest, it's not hidden. And, and so what is Paul trying to get at here that the Spirit expressly says? What does he mean by this? It could be um, fresh prophecy from the Lord. For example, in, in Acts 21, 11, uh, the prophet Agabus says, the Holy Spirit says, and then gives a prophecy to the Apostle Paul about his journey to Jerusalem. However, the Holy Spirit also says in the New Testament, uh, in Hebrews 3, verse 7, uh, the Holy Spirit says, and then we read a quote from Psalm 95. So sometimes when we read the Holy Spirit says, it means here's a quote from previous scripture. Then again, in the book of Revelation, the place where we find the greatest concentration of the phrase, the Holy Spirit says, or what the Spirit says, it's, it's um, in the opening chapters where we have the letters to the seven churches. And we read what the Holy Spirit or the Spirit says to the churches. And then what we get is actually the words of Christ, a letter from Christ to each of the, the churches. And so how do we sort through what Paul's up to in this text? Because we have a few options. Well, first we should check to see if this is a, a quote from the scripture. Is what the Holy Spirit says a direct quote? And we find, no, this is not a direct quote from anything. In fact, as I was reading this, I realized that these Greek words and, and phrases, there's actually a, a few of them here that don't occur anywhere else in the whole Bible. And none of them in combination in any uh, previous text. And so let's, let's read again considering maybe this is fresh revelation from God through Paul. And let's try to discern what are the core truths being taught here? What does the Spirit say? The core truths in verses 1 to 2 are this. Firstly, some will depart from the faith. We see that in verse 1. And that this will happen in later times, or the latter times, end times type of stuff. And thirdly, that those who depart will be devoted not to the Lord, but to deceitful demonic doctrine. They'll leave because they're following liars who teach or de deceivers who teach this demonic doctrine. And so we might ask, is this sort of a new concept? Is this news to the church? That, oh boy, in the end times, there will be deceivers who come and, and lead people astray via the teachings of demons, and they'll fall away from Christ. And so what we find is this, though what the Spirit says here is not a direct quote from the Scriptures, these same core truths were clearly taught by Christ during his earthly ministry. 
And Jesus himself was actually expounding on what the Old Testament had already said. So I'd like to give you just two samples of this. One from the teachings of Jesus. So Matthew 24, I'll be reading verses 3 through 6 and 11 through 14. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? There's the end times context. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. There's the, there's the departing from the faith. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. In other words, you should know that this is coming. You should expect it. Don't be alarmed. But the end is not yet. So everything that we just read is not the signs of the end times. But it is a feature of the last days. Because what question is Jesus answering? What will be the signs of the end? And he says, well, this is what it'll, it'll look like. But when you see these things that we've just read, that's not quite the end. It's like, it's, it's the end times, but not the final end times. In other words, it's the period that we're living in right now. In fact, when Paul writes to Timothy, he's telling him to beware of those who are teaching the demonic doctrines, who are causing people to depart from the faith, meaning that they're active in the church of Ephesus right now. We're living in the last days in the first century, and we're living in them now. And in a sense, though, they're not the final last days, sort of a multi-stage thing going on here. It's the last days because the Messiah has already come. From a Jewish Old Testament perspective, if you're living in the time after the Messiah has come, that's the final, those are the final times. That's the culmination of human history. And yet, the end is not in the first century, is it? And so we keep reading in verse 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So these final, final days are very similar to the not so final, final days that Jesus has been talking about. Verse 12, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So we notice whether it's false teachers, not the sign of the end, or whether it's false teachers right before the end, we see that actually false teachers, false Christs, and people departing from the faith is a feature of the Christian era. Whether you're living in the final days or whether you're just living in the later times, it makes no difference. You should expect, as far as 1 Timothy 4 is concerned and Matthew 24 is concerned, expect false teachers and the doctrines of demons to cause people to, to, to depart from the faith. Professing Christians who do not persevere to the end. That's the call. Persevere to the end. And so that was, that was uh, Matthew 24, the teachings of Jesus. Let's look at one example of the Old Testament basis for this spirit, um, the words of the spirit here in 1 Timothy 4. Daniel 8, 23 through 26. We've just had a discussion about the Greeks and Persia. Uh, and then the book continues. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. Do you see the demonic influence here? And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. 
By his cunning, he shall make deceit. There's that deceptive teaching. It'll prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. In other words, the Lord himself will take care of him. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. There's your later times. So I believe that when Paul says, the Spirit expressly says, he's about to summarize Old Testament teaching and New Testament teaching, even in the the earthly ministry of Jesus, on what these latter times, the post-Messianic age or the Messianic age will be like. And so he says, you you need to be on guard, and the Spirit has told you plainly. And and back to that question, if if these core truths should be expected in the later times, why does Paul mention them to Timothy in the first century? This is maybe a bit of a hang-up for us. Turn to Hebrews 1, 1 1-2. I'll have it on screen as well. Hebrews 1, 1 1-2 says this, Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. These last days in the first century. Then look at 1 Peter 1, 20 to 21. Speaking of Christ, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. So, Brothers and sisters, our place in the big story of human, the human, um, the, sorry, the big story of human history, is right at the end. And you know that because all the promises and expectations and hopes of all of human history and all the scriptures pointed us to Christ, and He has come. And now the Lord is just tying up loose ends. That's that's where we're living. And so Paul's encouraging Timothy, since he's ministering in these last days, he should expect false Christs. Because how can you have an antichrist and a false Christ out in the open if you don't know who the Christ is? So the presence of the Christ is an opportunity for Satan to say, hey, I've got alternative here. I've got these other Christs. I have these other doctrines. The more clearly God speaks in his word, the more openly Satan can contradict it. Specifically. And that's exactly what Timothy's to expect. And yet, their doom is as certain as the second coming of Christ. Second Thessalonians 2, we read about the Antichrist, whom Jesus will take care of at his coming. In the meantime, though, the church must be ready to recognize and defend against these lies. And so the call to action here in this text remains as relevant for the church today as it was for the church Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus in the first century. After all, if they were living in the last days, how much more are we who are so much closer to the second coming? And so, if we do live in a world where latter-day deceivers are seeking to draw professing Christians away from Christ and into demonic worship... um, That sounds pretty extreme, and it sounds like it would be easy to recognize what Paul describes as demonic and hypocritical teachers who have their consciences seared against the truth of God, right? Have you ever watched uh, a Jesus movie where Judas has sort of the the hook nose and, and the cackle, and he's always off in some dark, shadowy corner? You think, oh, okay, well, if this is like demonic, hypocritical, conscience seared, I mean, this would just be the worst of the worst sinners teaching this kind of stuff. 
right? This kind of demonic teaching. And just openly just drawing people away from the church, saying, don't go there, don't believe in Jesus, right? It'll be easy to recognize this. It sounds pretty extreme. Latter-day demonic teaching. And yet this is where things get interesting because if we read verse 3, we discover what demonic doctrine actually looks like. Verse 3. These teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so through these false teachers, the demons target and forbid two things. They say no to marriage and yes to celibacy. And it's a mandate. Secondly, certain foods. They say no, and in their place, special diets. And you might go, whoa, that's the best the demons have to offer, right? What about, what about something more, you know, dark and evil? There's, some, there's worse than being a single vegetarian. There's worse things in the world than being a single vegetarian, right? <laughs> and so this is a real Trojan horse, isn't it? It looks like, oh, that's it. That's not so bad. Maybe even holy, right? And in fact, Paul himself said that there is an advantage to singleness. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 35 and verse 38. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So in, in Paul's thinking, I'm, I'm not putting any obligation on you, but if you could stay single in order to devote yourself wholly to the Lord, that would be the better path. It's not for everyone. Because God's given us things like biological drive to have children, and that's good. And most of us should do that. Or a sex drive to be satisfied within a godly home and a godly marriage. And, and you, should, you should do that. But for, the, for those that are able, for those whom God calls and are able to walk in holiness, Paul says, I wish everyone was like me, single, able to just serve the Lord wholeheartedly, not, not messing around with household things and, and, and pleasing your spouse. But these teachers are different. They don't just prefer celibacy or singleness. They actually forbid marriage. Look at the wording. They forbid marriage. That's different, isn't it? It seems like they're actually holier on the one hand because only some of Paul's followers will choose the better way of singleness over the good way of marriage. So these false teachers, they will have better disciples, quote unquote, better disciples, right? All of them choosing the better path, as Paul said. All, all of them will be single as a rule. And in the same way, their followers will avoid lesser foods like meat or not kosher meat or meat sacrificed to idols. Like Daniel, they'll choose maybe the vegetables, only the most pure and holy things for us. They will eat vegetables like the pure Adam and Eve, garden food right? Whereas Paul's followers, they'll eat everything set before them. Kind of like fallen Noah and his sons. So who's more holy? Just as with marriage, they don't just choose a certain diet. They require, notice the wording, they require abstinence from foods, even though God created these foods to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. 
Paul's teaching on this is also clear. Romans 14, 13 through 15, let us therefore not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I am persuaded in the Lord. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Or Titus 1, 14 to 15. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. These are these same dudes. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and consciences are defiled. And so Paul gives believers freedom to eat all things, but not to make their brothers stumble. You're free to marry, but you're also free to choose the better way of singleness. These false teachers turn an optional blessing and Christian freedom into commandments. And this is their error. They teach, these teachers have added to the word of God and contradicted it by forbidding what God allows and calls good. Put another way, for example, in the garden, Adam and Eve, they rejoiced over what God had not granted them. They called good what God called evil, the forbidden fruit. And Satan won that battle. But many Christians won't be easily led astray to openly embrace obvious sin. And so instead, these demonic teachings make a much more righteous, uh, take a much more righteous looking approach. They reject and forbid what God has given to them. They set up a higher standard of so-called righteousness and purity that God has not required. They say no to the enjoyments of earthly life when they have no right to condemn God's good gifts to humanity. They put obligations on the conscience of Christians where God has given freedom. And in so doing, they draw professing Christians towards legalism and away from the free gift of God's righteousness given through Christ in the gospel. In other words, they call evil what God calls good. That's the Trojan horse. And so how does Paul equip Timothy to refute this Trojan horse of false righteousness? Let's read three to five. He tells him that God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Paul goes right back to Genesis. I don't know if you noticed that. Everything God created was good. In fact, on day six, everything God created was very good. Does that include all the food? Yes. Does it include marriage? It does. Adam and Eve. So Paul looks back to scripture to let God himself speak to what is good and what is forbidden. And this is exactly what he means in verse 5 when he says, these things are made holy by the word of God. God has actually told you what's good and what is an area of freedom and what is forbidden. And the Bible says that these things, food and marriage, are both good. Looking at Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. 
And there was evening and morning the sixth day, looking at marriage specifically, Genesis 2, 18 and 22. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man should be, that the man should be alone. Notice he doesn't say it's sinful. That's key. Paul can be single and be pleasing to the Lord. There's no sin in the world yet. The fall has not occurred, and yet it's not good that man should be alone. There's something incomplete. There's something not as mature and developed as it should be, for all the animals have a partner, but nobody's there for Adam. And so he's saying, I'm not done yet. Man is not designed to live alone, but needs fellowship and community, and specifically that of marriage, normally. And so he says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. In verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Who brought the woman to the man? Whose idea was this marriage? The Lord. It's a good thing. It's a gift. How about food? Genesis 9, 3 to 4. And you might say, well, yeah, of course all food was good in the garden, right? What about in a fallen world? Well, Genesis 9, 3 to 4. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So we see that God opens the buffet to Noah and yet does put some restrictions on him. Does he say, eat only vegetables? No. He says, everything but the blood. Now go enjoy. So these things are made holy or sanctified by the word of God. So Timothy is to refute false teachings by the word of God, by both refusing to call good what God calls evil and refusing to call evil what God created and called good. And, and here's, I think, a necessary caveat. There are, of course, realities of the fall which cause uh, certain things to become corrupted or often used in sinful ways. This is not to say that everything you find in the world is good. It's got God's stamp of approval. For example, poppies are wonderful and good. Some of you know where I'm going with this. But opium is a life-destroying addictive substance. Rocks are good, declared so in Genesis, but not when used as murder weapons. And probably not when used as food either. Even marriage itself can, of course, be problematic. When God declares marriage good and all foods good, he's not saying they're perfect in a fallen world. It can be problematic, for example, if the two are not equally yoked, or in the case of remarriage after an illegitimate divorce, or in the case of just an argument. Marriage sometimes is harder than singleness. But these corruptions of God's good creation don't negate the basic goodness of what God has created and called good. Even if your marriage is hard, marriage is still good. Even if your food isn't organic, food is still good. And before wrapping up our, our look at this text, look, let's look at verse 5 again. It says, it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So we've looked at how it's made holy by the word of God. What does it mean that they're made holy by prayer? And it's not that food and marriage are bad until prayed over, um, at, which, at which point they are miraculously converted to good and harmless things. Um, Romans 14, 23 says this, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. 
for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if you believe that it would be a sin to partake of anything, you shouldn't for the sake of your conscience. Don't enter into something in unbelief thinking God would be displeased with me if I did this. Never do that. Even if that thing is objectively actually good, you shouldn't do it until you're convinced that this is a gift from God and you're able to turn to him in prayer and say, thank you, God. This is a wonderful gift and I praise and worship you as I enjoy. Which is a great litmus test, by the way. If you're kind of wondering, hey, am I, should I be doing this? Ask yourself, can I do this as an act of worship? Can I pray while I do this? Can I pray and thank God for this thing? If your answer is no, then your answer is no, you, you should not do this. If your answer is yes, and you've searched the scriptures, and it seems God has given you freedom, go for it and enjoy. So, yes, in the Bible, God does declare all things good and holy, but this has to be joined with faith in our hearts. Some things are holy by decree, but have to be made holy for you personally through prayer and by faith. And you might be wondering at this point, is calling good evil really a great threat to the church today? When we look around at the world and we know the world is broken and we feel it, we often see that the world celebrates sin, right? They call good what God calls evil. But what about the inverse? Is this particular Trojan horse of calling evil what God calls good a real problem for us today? Is it something we're very likely to fall prey to personally? And so think with me for a moment as, as I outline just a few real threats posed by this Trojan horse that we need to guard against as the church today. One thing that God called good and designed is gender, biblical femininity and masculinity. There are so-called Christians who will attempt to shame us for agreeing with God who said, for example, in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so the world looks at this, God's good design, the gender binary, as they say, as a pernicious lie, as a destructive lie. And then there are Christians who have crafted biblical arguments, so-called, to deny and downplay what God called good. And they will correct your speech if you affirm the word of God on this. Add to this Genesis 5.2. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created, or mankind. The Hebrew word is Adam. He called them both by Adam's name. The word of God is, is clear on this, and yet we hear about people kind, don't we? And so the significance of 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5 in our times uh, seems to be clear. The demons and their human instruments would love to swell the ranks of non-binary affirming Christians whose consciences will not allow them to say ladies and gentlemen or mankind. They would call evil what God expressly calls a blessed feature of his good creation. This is not us restricting ourselves because God is a killjoy or a hater. This is us celebrating what God has done and called very good. Here's another variation. Maybe how God created us personally. 
And here's the sad reality of seared consciences calling good evil in our times. They would teach that young people should try to change the way God made them, instead embracing things like puberty blockers, hormones, surgeries, as if God messed up. Permanently altering their bodies as if God's design for them was some great evil. And no doubt, it's not always easy to be a man or a woman as God designed us. We all have our challenges. Many youth, in fact, will go through a season of life where they're quite uncomfortable in the gender that God has given them. But running the opposite direction from God's decision about your gender only results in more emptiness. His design really is good and better, whether we agree with him or not. And the devastation brought into the lives of those who fall prey to, to this lie of transgenderism is indeed demonic. For Satan has hated and attacked the image of God in mankind from the very beginning. And so, friends, there are churches today who offer prayers to the great they-them or the mother God who celebrate the rejection of natural gender in humanity and are destroying people's lives. So let's guard our hearts against this teaching and, and also against being provoked into hating the victims of this ideology instead of showing compassion. Jude speaks to us clearly in verse 17 to 23. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly what we're talking about in 1 Timothy 4. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself, yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Have nothing to do with these sins, but be right there in the thick of it, extending God's mercy to a world that's broken because they've forsaken his design. I'll give you another example. We call good evil when we reject our own bodies or personality quirks. What happens when you look in the mirror? Or hear a recording of your own voice. That's the word I needed to hear this morning. I never listen to my sermons. <laughs> Do you insult or degrade yourself when you look in the mirror? Does that serve the interests of God who made you to be accepted with thanksgiving or demons who hate the image of God in you? How about your body? Do you view food itself or the curves and shapes it produces in men and women, uh, or maybe even your monthly cycle as unclean, unholy, undesirable, evil. And so any Christian teaching about manhood, womanhood, humanity, which, which denigrates the natural healthy bodies and bodily functions of any human is demonic. It is not more godly or more beautiful to torture our bodies into any man-made ideal of beauty or health while rejecting what God has designed as ugly or sick. To be very careful not to praise or chide each other's physical appearance or to assign spiritual status to things like fitness, calories, skin color, or fashion. This is where this demonic teaching intersects with eating disorders. God, you made me this way. You made women with certain curves, and I'm saying no. 
We need to have compassion. We need to speak the truth. How about another one? We call good evil when we treat humanity as a scourge on the earth. Instead of agreeing with God that we should multiply and fill the earth, we say instead, I'm a good person and a true Christian because I'm vegetarian or vegan. I only eat sustainably harvested fish. I don't drink a drop of alcohol. I won't have children or at least not very many. I drive an electric car. I live in a tiny house, etc. I offset my carbon footprint. The underlying conviction behind what admittedly can be wise stewardship choices, but, but it can also be the demons whispering in our ears this lie. Humanity should not multiply. Humans are an awful disease and the predator of the planet. God was wrong to give you life, and earth would be better off without you. That's the lie of environmentalism and other suicidal ideologies. It's not to say we should abuse the planet, but we ought to be very careful that we don't call even ourselves, God called good, evil. Here's another one. Calling good evil sets up a stricter standard than God's standard, leading to self-righteousness and legalism. This one's coming for all of us. We call good evil when we set up our own rules as better and holier than God's, as if his word isn't, as, isn't good as our pers- for our personal standards. For example, we might say this, I only read the KJV. Or more likely in this room, I only read the ESV. Or whatever. I only engage in intimacy for the purposes of procreation. It's how unfleshly I am. Or I, I only go... Go to churches and accept Christians who attend X denomination. And God has called all those who are in Christ saints. How about this one? Spiritual masochism. We call good evil when we believe that God will be more pleased with us the more we live in hardship as if God's goal for our life is not to praise him for his goodness in in the gospel, to rejoice, but to tolerate his punishments with piety. And we might even seek those things out to make our lives miserable or self-sabotage when it looks like success is coming so that we don't set up too high of a standard that we might fail. We punish ourselves. This could be as benign as thinking that God always sends missionaries to their least favorite mission field. Have you heard that? (laughs) Those are the really holy ones, right? Where they can really take it on the nose day after day. Their relationship with God is not about blessing and love and adoption, but masochism. That's holiness. Or it could be as harmful as self-isolation. Maybe I sinned too much this week. I won't come to church. Maybe I just put a phone or a laptop screen between me and everyone who cares about me because I deserve that. Or maybe it's as insidious as self-harm. That if I'm not in pain, I must be doing something wrong. The truth is God made us to know and enjoy his love in Christ. And he's not simply pleased to see us do penance through avoiding his good gifts of comfort, meaningful work, fellowship, joy in life, etc. And then here's a more lighthearted one. We even have to be careful in how strongly we condemn the modern push towards eating bugs. 
I don't want to ever be forced to switch from steak to crickets. But John the Baptist ate locusts because locusts are declared good as food by God in both Genesis and Leviticus. And we risk calling good evil if we declare that we don't eat bugs because they are evil as food when God declared them good. Yes, Christian, you can eat crickets. You don't have to, I hope. But don't declare them evil. And this leads me to a historical example as we close. When we declare good to be evil, we set up a man-made standard of good that, and here's the real risk, even Jesus won't live up to. Whose standards does Jesus live up to? God's righteousness, his standard. An early example in Christian history of a sect which embraced the kinds of demonic teachings Paul is warning against here in 1 Timothy is called the Ebionites. They were sort of a quasi-Judaistic sect. They likely arose just after the time of the apostles. We're not entirely sure the, the year. But among other things, they forbid their followers from eating meat. They published their own edited version of, of the gospel called the Ebionite Gospel. And predictably, since they had exchanged God's revealed righteousness and what he said was good with their new and improved version, they didn't really like the Jesus presented by the apostles very much. Here are a few of the ways that they modified Jesus to suit their higher vegetarian standard. Matthew 3, 4 says this, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts, the Greek word akris, and wild honey. The Ebionite gospel changes akris, locusts, to enkris, pancakes. Yeah, because locusts are too much like meat. So the Ebionite gospel reads this. And John had a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins. And his food, as it is said, was wild honey, the taste of which was that of manna as a cake dipped in oil. There's no locusts there. They've changed Acris to Enchris. Close enough, right? It made John the Baptist a little holier. How about Luke 22, 15? And he said to them, this is Jesus, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer that final Passover, the Lord's Supper, which, by the way, features roasted lamb, roasted over the fire. Pretty good stuff. The Ebionite Gospel says, the disciples ask, where will you have us prepare the Passover? And he answered, do I really desire to eat flesh with you at this Passover? It's a little tweak. Turn it into a question. So the Ebionites give us a perfect picture of the outcome of choosing to call God's good creations evil. Found themselves departing from the faith, drifting off towards a different savior who then, as we know, is no savior at all. And this is exactly what our text told us to expect in the later times we've lived in for the last 2,000 years. You see, you're not just setting up a a better standard than God has, an alternative ethic of food and drink or marriage, including gender and sexuality, but they've repeated the mistake of Adam and Eve, haven't they? They've differed with the creator, with what's good and what's evil. And in so doing, they've lost the spiritual battle. And demons have carried them away from the faith, away from Christ, 
and away from the opportunity to actually enjoy and glorify God in all he's given, including the most important gift he's ever given, his own son. The Ebionites looked at that gift and said, we think we can tweak it because they were in the habit of doing so for lesser things. His own son who stood in the place of sinners, reconciling them to their creator, paying the penalty of their sins, which God gets to define what that payment looks like, what sin is, and what his Messiah will eat. And Jesus did it perfectly by God's standard, not ours. In fact, what was humanity doing at the foot of the cross? Despising God's gift, calling his good gift laughable, mockable. It's the epitome of demonic influence. No wonder Paul cautioned Timothy about this. And so church, we could do no better than say amen to all that God reveals in his word and to cling to the Christ of the scriptures. More subtly in our own lives, yes, the world is not perfect, but do you accept that whatever you have from the Lord's hand is good, even when it's hard? Some of you are, are suffering, are ill, diseased, suffering with health issues. Others have strife in the family. Others might even regret your choice of a spouse. And yet, what God has given you is from his hand. It may not be perfect, but don't call what God has given you evil. While transgenderism might seem far away or the Ebionites might seem long ago, this is where Paul's exhortation meets with real life. When God has given or God has taken away, can you say, blessed be the name of the Lord? Can you praise him through it and not reject his choice? Can you say, what will you teach me, Lord? How will you glorify yourself in my obedience and my acceptance? How, Lord, will you be glorified as I accept not only from the word of God that all things are by your sovereign direction, but that by faith and by prayer, I might even pivot and give you thanksgiving. Each of us have to face that choice. And on these issues and others, we have to do so even when professing Christians around us want to offer us a seemingly better and holier God who wouldn't ask you to do that or who would give you what you desire instead of what he decreed good or who want to offer a seemingly better and holier morality 2.0 or Jesus 2.0 in these last days. Let's stay in the faith. Amen? Lord Jesus, I'm thankful that you are God's good and great gift to humanity, that you did all things well. And Lord, even when humanity looked at the gift that you've given, not just food and marriage, but your own son and rejected him, you went forward. You were not swayed. But by his atoning death, you welcomed us and then gave us new hearts to love the things you love, 
to celebrate your good gifts and to reject the things you despise. Lord, help us to do so. Help us to be like Christ in this, who always celebrated the good and rejected the evil. Help us to be a church, Lord, that's on guard, not just for the obvious transgressions, but but Lord, even for those more subtle devices of the devil that would cause us to to go astray in a way that, that maybe even looks holy. Lord, keep our eyes focused on Christ as we cling to him. In Jesus' name, amen.